and welcome to CausePods. I'm your host, Matthew Passy. Here at CausePods, we have one simple mission, to highlight the amazing folks who are using podcasts as a way to raise awareness for good causes and make the world a better place, whether it's in their own local community or they're taking on global issues. Please visit us at causepods.org where you can learn about our guest show, their favorite charitable cause, join our Facebook group with resources for cause-based podcasters, and find a link where you yourself could be a guest here on CausePods. Again, that's all at causepods.org. All right, folks, going to take you out to Seattle, Washington. We are joined by Tamina Watson. She is the host and creator of Tamina Talks Immigration. She's the founder of Watson Immigration Law. It's a Seattle-based law firm with immigration attorneys practicing exclusively here in the United States on immigration naturalization law. So you can imagine what our topic is going to be today. But Tamina, thank you so much for joining us here on CausePods. Matthew, I'm so grateful and honored to have the opportunity to speak with you. Oh, and it is our pleasure. This is certainly a topic we have not covered in the past on the show. So I'm excited to dive right into this. But I guess first off, what got you interested in wanting to work on immigration and naturalization cases as a lawyer? Like, did you know you wanted to be a lawyer and then you chose this? Or was immigration a passion project? And so you pursued the law in order to have a more powerful set of tools to work on this cause? That's a really good question. I always wanted to be a lawyer. That's all I cared about from the moment I could actually remember. But I wanted to do that in the UK where I was born and raised. And life uh, brought me to the United States. I, I met an amazing guy and I fell in love and I eventually got married and moved here and now have kids. But when I moved here, I had to figure out how to be a lawyer again. You know, that while you're a lawyer, like many other professions, if you move countries, you've got to become a professional lawyer all over again. So I was li living in Washington State, where I still live, but I, I had a UK degree. And if Washington would allow me to be a lawyer again, I'd have to go to law school. And I wasn't going to go to law school anymore. And so I realized I could take the New York bar exams. So I took the New York bar exams. In this country, if you are practicing law, you must be licensed in that state. And so with a license of New York living in Washington, I kind of got limited in what I could practice. And so immigration is a federal area of law, meaning that you could practice immigration law anywhere in the country with whatever license you have. And so that's what I ended up doing. But immigration was the one thing I didn't want to practice. Of all the areas of law, I didn't want to do immigration because I thought it was going to be heartbreaking every day, doing asylum law every day. And I just didn't know the, the depth and the breadth of the area. But I fell into it because I didn't have a lot of choices at the time. The third time it landed on my lap, I thought, you know, I should just do this and see what happens. And that's when I realized, oh, my gosh, I was made to practice immigration law. I had just gone through the U.S. immigration system to get my own green card and live here and get, you know, eventually got citizenship. I had seen immigration up close and personally in the UK where I lived. My parents were immigrants to the UK, so I, you know, I grew up in a culturally diverse community and I speak the languages and I lived in different countries. So altogether, it was a very good personal fit and from a legal perspective, it was a it's a very interesting, challenging, fast-moving area and you're making an impact on people's lives 
immediately. You know, I could be working with CEOs of companies to a battered spouse immediately. And all of those things means I can see the impact in real time as opposed to keep pushing paper and not necessarily seeing the end of the transaction. I imagine because you married an American that your getting a visa green card experience was much different and probably more seamless than some of the clients you work with. But what are some of the big issues, big challenges that you deal with on a regular basis with immigration law here in the States? That's a really good question. And yes, uh, uh, compared to all the other, all the paths that exist to get a green card and citizenship, getting married to a US citizen is generally the simpler option, as long as it's a real true relationship. Otherwise, I mean, don't do it. And so yes, I did go through that process. uh, But it doesn't come with its own, you know, it comes with its own challenges. And so for example, at the time, I couldn't travel, it took a long time to get the green card, not as long as it does these days. And you've got to really open up your entire life and, you know, personal information. And so it has its own challenges, but it's a very fair thing for the government to ask when they're verifying whether this is a real relationship or not. When you said you couldn't travel, do you mean within the States, like you couldn't fly or just like you couldn't go overseas and go visit home and things like that? Really good question. Thanks for picking that up. You know, when you actually file for a green card in the US, depending on the type of, you know, status you had before filing, while that is pending, if you leave the country, that form is considered abandoned. And so you, you have to get permission before you can leave. And that permission generally takes four to six months. Under COVID, it's taking significantly longer. And so during that period, one cannot leave the country. You can travel within. But the type of people I see, you know, we have to go through a visa soup to assess whether that person is eligible for any of the visas. Now, your listeners may or may not know, there's sort of an alphabet of visas. They're all a letter followed by numbers. So A1, B2, C2 you know, C1. One of the visa numbers people might know of is an H1B. Um, people might know about an H2. So these, it's always a letter followed by a number. and uh, But they all signify different things. You know, the merit of the case could be, are you being sponsored by an employer, like an H1B? Or are you being sponsored by a US citizen, like a K1, like a fiancé visa? People might know the show 90 Days Fiancé. It's based upon, you know, somebody getting sponsored by a US citizen with the promise of getting married. So the first thing I have to do is really assess what kind of visa or visas might be suitable. And you make a short list and then you narrow it down. But then it's a matter of figuring out, you know, can they even do this? And so there's a lot of sort of like you can't get past go in a monopoly game until you've made that assessment. And once you can get past go, then there are a whole different types of challenges with that. Do you have the, the right paperwork for it? If you do, now we file. We filed a case with the government. Now the challenge is, particularly under COVID, how long is it going to take? Which part of the world are you living in? Even if your case is approved, can you get a visa? Is the embassy open? Now under COVID, there have been some interesting, unprecedented challenges. We're coming out of a four-year period where the immigration system was essentially broken 
down. It was already a broken system. It was broken down even further. But then nobody anticipated COVID would really exacerbate that problem. So while your listeners might be hearing about the news at the border, what people are not hearing about is how people on a day-to-day basis are being affected. People with work permits cannot get those permits because the system, the immigration system, USCIS, United States Immigration Services, they're delayed. Offices are closed or slow in taking appointments these days. There's an inherent backlog that has built up over the last 15 months. And that has a real effect on people's lives. They can't get their work permits. They can't get their green cards. And if you think about people abroad, Embassies are just closed. They have recently opened, but they're only opening for emergency situations. But even if you can get an appointment, then you have to make an assessment, is this country under a ban or not? In the last four years, there were different types of bans, visa-specific bans. If you're this visa, that green card, you cannot come in. But what happened in COVID is now there are country bans. So if you're from India, Europe, South Africa, Brazil, you actually cannot even get a visa. So there is just a myriad of challenges that we have to go through on a day-to-day basis of what's happening to this client and where can they actually get a visa? Can they come in? But one of the things I think I would love your listeners to understand is that there's often a rhetoric of why are we helping the immigrant or it's an immigrant problem or, you know, it's the rhetoric and the focus is on the immigrant. But what people don't understand is that U.S. and American people and American companies are affected. So when an American company is applying for a visa for somebody or hiring somebody on a work permit and they simply cannot get them to work, that American business is actually affected because they either have to keep that position open or they they, they hired them in the first place because they normally can't find people to take those positions. And so those businesses are affected. The American consumer is affected. So immigrant immigration is not just about the immigrant. It's really about Americans. And that is not necessarily always understood. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fascinating that in all of this, right, we think about the border and, you know, what's happening on the southern Texas and California and Arizona. And really, there are immigration issues that happen everywhere in this country that people don't even think about. And so it is an important issue. And you're right. It is a big part of our economy of keeping things going. We know how many small businesses and companies are started by folks who have immigrated into the United States. And so it's not just those who are running across the border and, you know, we're, we're scared into thinking they're taking our jobs and they're hurting about, but there are people who are really coming here for opportunity and to help in a lot of different ways. And, And they just run into bureaucratic and other roadblocks. And folks like you are the ones who help them get through it and help us have a better system, you know, where you're able to. So you're doing this kind of work. And before we started to record, you were telling me that you were on the radio. Is that where the idea for a podcast was first born? Or did something else happen when you decided to say, I'm going to start my own podcast? You know, it's a really good question because I think it organically sort of came together. You know, I had a live radio show and as an immigration lawyer, I just wanted to practice immigration law. And so it sort of fell into my lap and I, I realized 
I'm good at it. I'm good at really uh, telling people how things are in a very simple way. And immigration is so complicated that you need somebody like me to explain it to you. And I was able to do that to the masses. And it was just so wonderful. But when the station that I was telling you earlier, it was a South Asian station. And I grew up in the UK. Having a South Asian station was part and parcel of life. I could, you know, wake up and listen to Bollywood music as well as listening, listen to the current news and suddenly I was getting that here but the station didn't survive it had to shut down and so that's when I realized I can continue to do what I'm doing and what's interesting is after the station closed down and I lost my weekly sort of rhythm it wasn't as easy to go to a studio and find the time and book it and find parking and I live in Seattle parking is always a nightmare and so it wasn't as regular but COVID allowed me to actually open up and do something you know more regularly because you and I are speaking on a laptop and suddenly I don't necessarily need to be in a studio and so I have been regularly doing uh, podcast episodes I recorded a whole series last year and it was called Legal Heroes in the Trump era. It was about a lot of immigration lawyers and non-immigration lawyers stepping up to the challenges that we had seen over the last four years. And in 2021, I've got a new series called The Startup Visa. I didn't get a chance to tell you this earlier, but I've written I've, I've written two books. One is called Legal Heroes in the Trump Era, which was inspired by the podcast series. I didn't really anticipate doing a book, but the podcast series sort of made me realize I need all of this in, in one spot. But what I've done, I that was my, I've written a book, it was in 2015. And now with a new administration, I'm advocating for changes for entrepreneurs to have a specific visa category. We don't have one. So my book is coming out on July 20th. It's called The Startup Visa. And uh, it's really, you know, for people who are in the finance world, who are investing in international entrepreneurs, often they can't really invest in these people because you don't know the certainty of their stay in the US. So a lot of investors, financiers, angels, accelerators, they want to invest in talent, innovative people who are bringing those new ideas to the US, and they just don't have a pathway. So this visa category that I'm advocating for, Biden administration started something and people can read it on my in my book and my my blog. But the, the new podcast series is to go with that. So the book comes out on July 20th and the podcast series we've is already recorded and it's um, up there um, you know so it's really my way of educating informing advocating who would you say is your core audience for your content and if it is folks who are immigrating to the United States or native to this country like how difficult is it to find your audience That's a really good question. You know, my listeners are very, often they are my clients and readers. I write a lot. You know, I have a bi-weekly column in a law magazine called Above the Law. So I have a lot of lawyers who listen to my book, my podcast, but often lawmakers and policymakers do as well, but definitely advocates for change in the immigration space. So it's very, it's, it's a varied crowd. And because I cover varied immigration 
migration topic. So I don't necessarily cover what's happening at the border. I don't necessarily talk about uh, asylum day in, day out. I talk about the things that matter to my clients and to change immigration, immigration reform. Part of what I love to do is inspire people. You know, there are a lot of people who, particularly in the last four years, wanted to do something to make their communities better, uh, help, you know, individuals with whatever problems were coming their way. And you probably get to hear about that with your podcast, Matthew, with CausePod, of course. And what happens in in these situations, people often are looking for ways to help uh, and they don't have time to create something new or figure out the idea that they have. But if you can create a pathway for them, they will use their spare time, whether it's five minutes or five hours in that. And so, you know, part of the previous series was really to inspire people. You are worried about something, go do something about it. You know, because you were doing radio before this, because you had a little bit of sense of media savvy, what were, if any, unique challenges to creating the podcast itself that you ran into? Or maybe just in general, any lessons that you've learned from doing this that you can share with other cause-based podcast creators or aspiring caused potters? Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, it took me a while to sort of figure out what to do because I would just turn up at my designated time at this beautiful studio with a wonderful producer who'd say five, four, three, two, one. And I'd start talking and then he'd just, you know, do the neck cutting, you know, your time is up and I would be done, you know, and I'd walk out of there and they'd send me a lovely, you know, MP3 that I'd just save. I felt I was spoiled without really realizing I was spoiled because I could do my lawyering stuff on air. But once the station shut down, I really had to figure out where do I go? What equipment do I use? How do I even talk to my guests? Because a lot of the guests would actually come in person to the studio. And so initially it was almost paralyzing where are studios? It's just so expensive to even book a, you know, split a space. How do I fit it into my schedule given their schedule? Because I had 10 o'clock Tuesday mornings blocked out at my office every week for two and something years. Suddenly I have to go, what, 3 p.m. on a Wednesday? I don't know if I can do it. So there was a scheduling issue for a busy lawyer you know, combining it with a busy, you know, studio. And then once I did that a few times, I thought, you know, I'm not sure if the the cost benefit is there. And so then I sort of took some time thinking, what do I do? But then COVID began. When COVID began, I started to speak to people, you know, just doing regular meetings on Zoom. And I thought, I could record this and put it on my podcast. Thinking of that, I started to do that. And I, you know, I had a headphone. And But then what happened during that t- period is that series led to a book. And as I finished the book and I was going to record it, I had these amazing sound people help me and they said, this is not working for your audio book. So I had to look around my house and find a small space and I found a closet that my kids were not using. It was for their toys that they thought they wanted to use, but really it would be piled up and nobody would open the door. So I started to put blankets around there and started to record my book. And I finished recording the book that way. So Legal Heroes in the Trump Era was recorded in the closet with blankets over my head. And it was done really well. But what happened was my husband took pity on me and we cleared out everything in that room. And he spent many a weekend putting foam up 
So now I have this beautiful little studio in my house where I recorded the second series. But the challenges that I faced was who's going to do the editing? How quickly do I do it? Do I move from SoundCloud to somewhere else? Well, now I'm on Buzzsprout, so I can track things a little bit better. I'm lucky to have, you know, the universe has sent me some amazing people in my life. And so some my my paralegal at my office is, you know, she's a theater buff and she actually does theater so she does does some recording and editing and so I've been able to find people in-house to do it but for anybody who's aspiring to do this I'd say the biggest challenge is getting started if you want to talk about something just talk about it there's nothing wrong with having a zoom recording on you know wherever you eventually host you can refine as you go but getting started often is where people get challenged but once you get started, you figure things out. You're like, oh, you know, I should get a better mic. You know, oh, I should, you know, find somebody to edit for me. I don't have the time. Getting started is really the hardest part, in my opinion. And if you can get over that hump, you can slowly figure things out. Could not agree with you further on that. That is just 100%. If you have a passion for something you want to share with the world, start sharing it with the world. You can fix it later. You can get better later. But you know, the longer you sit on the sidelines, the less you're going to be able to learn, the the less you're going to be able to improve. And, you know, by the time you do get started, you'll have wasted all that time that you could have been learning from, from the experience of it. So as part of your appearance here, we are supporting the, so as part of your appearance here today, you are supporting the Washington Immigrant Defense Network. Also looks like it's referred to as Widen. You can learn more at widenlaw.org. You are a co-founder of this 501c3. Tell us what Widen does and if we're interested in getting involved, how we can help out. Sure. So this is a nonprofit organization that came about in the last four years when a lot of people were being detained and they needed immigration lawyers. And so we have a new model of providing legal representation in detained immigration settings. Quite often, or more often than not, people who are detained immigrants in trials don't have legal representation. That's because there's no right to counsel in immigration court. And so one of the things that people often think about is, well, why don't they have pro bono attorneys? Pro bono attorneys can't really do as much work as one would want them to do, because ultimately people are people and they have bills to pay. And so this new model came about when there was a demand, a surge in demand, and we pay a stipend to experienced immigration lawyers who take on cases and they train and supervise non-immigration lawyers who provide pro bono services in this situation. And listeners who are interested in immigration and follow immigration will probably see that just a couple of hours ago, the United States Supreme Court actually came out with a decision saying immigrants who have been deported, who actually come back to the US for humanitarian reasons, will remain in detention. And in detention. They will not be released. And so this just came down from the Supreme Court. And then in the last three weeks, the Biden administration actually announced a new program called Detain Dockets, meaning that they're trying to change the way in which people who come from the border get speedier 
trials. But it doesn't necessarily take into account that there are 1.3 million people in detention centers waiting for their trials. So the demand is so high, there aren't enough immigration lawyers to do this work around the country. The nonprofit that we have is only for Washington state. Due to COVID, we've sort of have been a little slow because, you know, courts were closed, but things are going to be moving pretty soon again. But what we do have is a model that doesn't exist anywhere in the country. And it would be good for people to know about us and see what can be done around the country in due course. But we are very proud. We have four other co-founders. Their names are Takao Yamada, Erin Albanese, Minda Thord, and Jay Garrison. And we have some amazing volunteers who have provided pro, pro bono assistance. And we have a handful of experienced immigration lawyers. And I want to give a shout out to an organization called Forward.us, FWD.us. They were one of our immediate supporters by giving us a grant of $25,000 so we could get off the ground. And so we're very proud of what we've done so far, but we're relatively new and the need for us is coming again very soon as these new detention center demands come up in the near future. Sounds like some incredible work that you are doing. For anybody who's interested in supporting what they are doing, it's widenlaw.org. Again, widenlaw.org. We'll put a link to that in the show notes and at causepods.org. Also, if you want to check out the podcast, TaminaWatson.com. That's T-A-H-M-I-N-A Watson.com is how you find the website. We'll also have links to that. Apple, Google, Spotify, if you want to check out the Tamina Talks Immigration Podcast, as well as Tamina on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Tamina, thank you so much for what you are doing and for sharing your story here on CallSpots. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you for what you're doing as well, highlighting various causes, and I'm honored I had the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause Pods. If you've been inspired by the work of our guest, please check out the show notes to this episode in your podcasting app or at causepods.org. There you will find links to their show, their website, their podcast links on Apple, Google, Spotify, as well as a link to support the charity that they highlighted here in this episode. You will also find at causepods.org a way to subscribe to this show on your favorite podcasting app, how to sign up to be a guest on this show, and a link to our Facebook group, which is going to have special resources just for the folks who are podcasting for a good cause. And I can tell you right now, we've got one great deal from our friends at PodPage, but you're only going to learn about it and get that special deal if you are a member of the Facebook group for Cause Pods. And before I go, I should say thank you in particular. The show is edited and produced by Ben Kiloy of the Military Veteran Dads Podcast and what a great job he has done. And all this is made possible because of the great support that I receive from Shannon Rojas here at thepodcastconsultant.com. Once again, if you want to learn more, go to causepods.org. Thank you so much. And we will see you next time on Cause Pods. Mm-hmm.